0: Thank you, Dr. Levin. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds on February <clears throat> the 19th, right, for, uh, of 2020. I'm happy to be back. Sorry to have missed the first two sessions by our trainees earlier this month. And um, we are finishing the month next week with Dr. Lee Beers, who is from uh, Washington, D.C. Children's National Medical Center and the present-elect, I believe, of the AAP for our annual Colin, Stewart, uh, Colin C. Stewart III Visiting Professorship will then also continue to join us for the Mount Washington Conference uh, Thursday through Sunday next weekend, and hopefully some of you will be joining us there as well. Um, so in order to get us kicked off, I, I don't know, I believe Carolyn has been introducing our resident speakers and she will introduce this morning's speaker.
1: Perfect, thanks Keith. Hi everybody, we have a great talk coming up today um, by Dr. Kira Kilmartin. Uh, As a bit of introduction, Kira Um, is a native of Montreal, did her undergraduate training at McGill, followed by her medical training at University College of Cork. Um, And will be going back to McGill after she graduates for her neonatology fellowship. So we are super excited for her. Um, She's got a great talk today. In the course of her training, she's done a fair amount of um, research. I have to compliment her because it is hard to do in um, medical school as well as residency. She has looked at neonatal resuscitation. Um, outpatient follow up predictors. She's going to talk about her project um, regarding nutrition and has also done a really nice QI project on the use of transcutaneous bilirubin testing in clinic. Um, so it is with great pleasure that I introduce our second, third year resident, Dr. Kira Kilmorton. Can you help me set up the
2: mic?
3: All right, good morning. Can everyone hear me okay? I don't think this is on. Is there a button on your side pack? No. There is. There is. Okay. Thank you. Okay. How's that? Is this working? Go ahead. Okay, testing. There we go. All right. Good morning. Thanks, everyone, for coming today to hear me talk about nutrition as medicine in the premature neonate. I'm glad to see everyone here this morning. To start, I do not have anything to disclose, except for the fact that I'm not actually a registered dietitian. So thank you to Stephanie Schuck for all of her help in preparing this talk today. My objectives this morning are to review how we optimize enteral nutrition in preterm babies, how we define and how we get babies to do catch-up growth, in both in terms of their growth and in terms of their development. And I want to review the importance of iron supplementation. And with that, I'll quickly go over a project that Tyler Hartman and I worked on looking at iron deficiency. To start, I'd just like to define prematurity. We know that any baby who's born under 37 weeks of stational age is considered preterm. However, for the purposes of today's talk with the literature that I'm referring to, when I say preterm, I'm really referring to babies who are born under 32 weeks of age. So technically, they are very preterm or extremely preterm. But just for the purposes of today. When I say preterm, that's what I mean. There are many preterm babies born every year in the US, over half a million alone just in this country every year. That's a lot of preterm babies. In New Hampshire, the rate is just under one in 10 live births is born preterm. Vermont has a rate of 7.5%. And both New Hampshire and Vermont are just under the national average of about 10% of babies being born preterm every year. And these numbers have been steadily increasing over the last 40 years. If we go back in time to the first real NICU, um, modern preterm infant care has its origins in Paris at the Hospital of Charity with the first specialized care unit for weaklings. That's what they referred to underweight babies as. Thankfully, we don't call them that anymore today. This hospital became the world's first center for specialized study on caring for preterm infants they noticed three main basic principles that these babies had issues with. They were cold, they had a risk of hypothermia, they were very vulnerable to infections, and they were terrible at feeding. If we fast forward to today, there have been many changes over the last 125 years, but the three same main principles for caring for these babies have stayed the same. We keep them warm, we use an incubator so they don't use all their energy generating heat, We continuously monitor them for signs of infection so that we can start prompt treatment. We do our best to optimize nutrition, which I'll talk about today. And, of course, we provide respiratory support as well. I really enjoy being in the NICU. It's what I'm going into for my career. Um, And I knew that quite early on and was grateful to have the opportunity to work in the Longitudinal High-Risk Follow-Up Clinic here at Dartmouth throughout residency. It's called the TLC Clinic. Um, Still not quite sure what that stands for, but I think it should be Tyler, Lauren, Kate, for the main members. Um, the experience here, yeah, sorry, Kate, that was the best I could do. <laughs> this experience meant that I was able to care for babies in the NICU and then continue to follow them home after they're discharged. And that reframed my understanding and my perception of what nutrition means in these tiniest of patients that we provide care for. With that, I'd like to introduce you to two babies that I had the privilege of taking care of. Baby A, a baby girl who was born at 27 weeks and one day. Yes, she's very cute. Um, (laughs) And Baby B, a baby boy who was born at 28 weeks and four days. And for the purposes of this talk, both of their names have been changed. We do see unusual names, but these were not their names. So throughout this talk, we'll follow their growth, we'll follow their development. And so we'll keep checking in on how they're doing in the NICU and once they go home. Going back to what prematurity causes... It's a major disruption at a time when the fetus should be growing very rapidly, with all body systems maturing and the brain developing at its fastest rate. Premature infants are often subjected to additional metabolic stressors, both internally and externally. And because of that, they have higher energy and nutrient requirements than their full-term counterparts which begs the question, why is nutrition so important? Well, we know that the development of organ structures and functions takes place during a pre-programmed period of life, and so malnutrition in infancy leads to a profound growth impairment, um, including growth failure, with long-term consequences on many systemic functions, including impaired neurodevelopment. Missing the adequate nutritional supply during this critical time window permanently and negatively affects multiple organ systems. We do know that it's not just neurodevelopment that can be infected by growth failure, but these babies can have increased rates of osteopenia, iron deficiency, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, BPD. They can have longer NICU stays, and even after they go home, they can have increased rates of repeat admissions after they're discharged home from the hospital. We know that impaired nutrition affects the entire brain. These are some of the most important nutrients to consider when we think about why nutrition is so essential to neurodevelopment. From cell growth to myelination, the entire brain is dependent on adequate nutrition. To focus in about how we provide the best nutrition, this is not the brand of baby formula we use in the NICU. Um, There are many ways to provide nutrition, but in preterm infants, it starts with total parenteral nutrition, also known as TPN. Optimally, we start TPN within an hour of birth to prevent catabolism for these babies. Unfortunately, today I'll have to spare you from the tedious details of electrolytes and micronutrients that we manage in TPN, because today I'll focus on enteral nutrition. Enteral nutrition is provided through an orogastric tube or a nasogastric tube. Ideally, we start something called trophic feeds, with volumes as low as one milliliter, and then work up to full enteral feeds. Ideally, trophic feeds start on day of life one, and by about seven to ten days, infants will have reached full enteral feeds through their feeding tube. Bottle feeds can start around 32 to 34 weeks corrected age, once babies have sufficient oral motor skills for this. Um, And usually that's well established by about 36 weeks, however, Bottle feeding, breastfeeding is very infant driven, and because of other comorbidities and impaired growth or development, um, not all babies will be able to do this by the time they are 36 weeks. So it's led by the infants. It is well established that the nutritional needs of preterm infants is significantly greater than their term counterparts. For example, these are the caloric requirements for a preterm infant between 120 to 130 calories per kilogram per day, whereas in a term infant, that number is around 100 calories per kilogram per day. The other nutrients, both micro and macronutrients, are of greater need as well. There's only so much volume you can actually feed a baby, whether that's breast milk or formula. So how do we get all of these nutrients in? The answer to that is fortification. We know that there is plenty of evidence supporting numerous advantages of breast milk. However, the nutrient needs of premature infants is likely to not be met with breast milk alone, especially those who are born weighing less than 1,500 grams, in particular with regards to protein. If we fortify breast milk, which we can do by adding commercially available milk fortifiers, that allows them to contain additional calories, additional protein, and additional, additional other nutrients as well. And you can see a big difference in the protein content here between breast milk and fortified breast milk. Fortification of breast milk and the use of specially designed preterm formula are what allow us to optimize nutrition in these babies. The current practice in our NICU is to discharge babies on breast milk that's either fortified um, or supplemented with um, Preterm formula such as Neosure 24 calorie formula. And as you can see here, there's even a big difference between breast milk that's fortified with Neosure or supplemented with Neosure compared to babies who are getting just Neosure alone. Those babies are getting a lot more protein, iron, and even vitamin D. Let's check back in on baby A and B. They've been growing in the NICU, so let's take a look at their growth charts. These are the Fenton premature growth curves demonstrating their growth in the NICU, and these charts are for their weight. Baby A, you can see here, is tracking along that 50th percentile line and growing great. She's doing well with her supplementation, started oral feeds, and continues to grow. Baby B, unfortunately, was tracking along that 15th percentile line for a while, and then started to fall off the growth curve, and we'll get into that a little more in detail as we go on. It's important that we not just follow their weight, we also follow their head circumference. Baby A is a rock star, her head circumference is getting larger and larger as her brain is growing and developing. Baby B is actually also having growth in his head circumference around that 15th percentile line. Another thing we follow in terms of looking at the entire baby in terms of their growth is their length. And so this is the Fenton growth curve for their length. Baby A again, 50th percentile line, kind of textbook perfect, and baby B Not so much. He did start off with shorter stature, um, but has completely fallen off of that growth curve and is not growing adequately for his length. When we think about length, it acts as a marker of nutritional status as well. If babies are growing in weight and not in length, that suggests that they're not having adequate protein and micronutrient intake. And two of these key nutrients to think about are calcium and phosphorus in relation to bone growth. Approximately 80% of fetal skeletal mineralization occurs during the third trimester of pregnancy, which preterm babies miss out on because they're born too soon. And osteopenia of prematurity refers to the hypomineralization of the neonatal skeleton compared to the in utero fetus Uh, that has a high accretion rate of minerals that these babies miss out on. In growing low birth weight infants, osteopenia is nearly a universal finding. There is an increase in osteopenia in premature infants who are born with a decrease in gestational age. The major objectives of supplying adequate calcium and adequate phosphorus to preterm infants is to support adequate bone growth and adequate mineralization. Fortification, again, of human milk or the use of formula specially designed for preterm infants helps to provide this additional calcium and this additional phosphorus that they need uh, to treat their osteopenia and to prevent their risk of osteopenia. We monitor for osteopenia of prematurity by measuring serum levels of alkaline phosphatase and serum phosphorus with higher levels of alkaline phosphatase suggesting that they have inadequate mineralization. Rickets is something that we think about. In the literature in the last 40 years, there's rates of 3% to 40% occurring, but the rates of rickets and the rates of skeletal fractures occurring in relation to this have been significantly declining with the use of supplementation and monitoring. (laughs) Since we know that there are more macronutrients, more micronutrients present in formula that's been specially designed for preterm infants, how do we know if it's best to use breast milk or best to use formula in these babies? There are no perspectives well-designed, randomized controlled trials to answer that question. Um, Cochrane Review to date as of 2019 did not find any trials that met their parameters for comparing these two. And it's unlikely that these trials are actually going to be conducted because of the ethics and the difficulties of allocating an alternative form of nutrition to a baby whose mother wishes to feed them their own breast milk. Um, Maternal breast milk remains the default choice of enteral nutrition, primarily because of the benefits of breastfeeding that are well established, including lower risks of infection, ease of digestibility, enhancement of development, among others. However, there have been trials comparing donor breast milk with formula. There was a Cochrane review up to date as of 2019, comparing donor breast milk to formula in preterm infants. So I will not be discussing term infants um, when I'm going through this. They found 12 trials that included about 2,000 preterm infants, and the results demonstrated that feeding with Specialized preterm formula increased rates of growth. During hospital stay, they had increased head circumference growth, weight gain, and length gain. However, there was a nearly doubling of the rate of necrotizing enterocolitis that occurred in the formula-fed group. These studies did not show a long-term effect on survival or long-term growth and development. However, they did have different endpoints in terms of what they looked at for long-term growth and development. Therefore, despite the advantages of increased growth due to the risk of necrotizing enterocolitis, which has a significant morbidity and mortality in these babies, formula is not used as a primary choice. In RICN, the goal is to use maternal breast milk where available. If it's not available, we do use donor breast milk. Um, and infants will receive donor breast milk if consent is signed until about 30 days. Of full enteral feedings, after which they are transitioned to a preterm formula which they will also be discharged home on. Thinking about donor breast milk, 75 years ago milk banking became very popular in Europe. This is a milk bank in Amsterdam at that time. Milk was collected here, treated, and at that time they powdered it before distributing the donor breast milk. With the AIDS epidemic and with several papers reporting improved neurodevelopment with the use of formula, the pendulum swung to move away from human milk, and more and more infants were fed with formula, including preterm infants. (laughs) There were editorials such as this, Breast is not necessarily best, published in The Lancet, which, among other journals, published articles reported many advantages of formula use. However, within a couple of years, Um, Arguments and papers were made that we should use mother's own milk because of evidence that it reduced rates of overall infections and also reduced rates of necrotizing enterocolitis, as well as um, suggesting improved developmental outcomes. So now that we know human milk is advantageous for many reasons over formula, what is donor milk like in comparison to maternal breast milk? Well, we know that exclusive donor breast milk is not as impactful as maternal breast milk from a nutritional standpoint um, due to the pasteurization process and because of the age at which the the donor milk is donated. Um, However, there's also an immunological disadvantage as well. The treatment of donor milk includes pasteurization, which reduces or eliminates several of the milk components. This heat treatment affects immune components which are reduced, sometimes entirely, and cellular components including white blood cells which are reduced or made completely non-functional even if they remain present. There is likely some residual immune benefit from donor milk that is retained, but it is certainly diminished in comparison to the use of maternal milk. A question that I'm sure many people in this room have been asked is, what about soy formula? Is soy formula good for preterm infants? The use of soy formula is not recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics for preterm infants. It's also not recommended for term infants with colic or allergy or with cow's milk protein induced enterocolitis. The AAP only recommends soy formula for the use of babies with hereditary galactosemia. The risk that soy formula poses for preterm infants who are already at a high risk of osteopenia of prematurity is that the phytic acid present in all soy products binds phosphorus, making it unavailable for absorption. This phytic acid also binds calcium, iron, and magnesium, reducing the absorption. There can also be an aluminum content that can interfere with bone growth and mineralization. And it has a completely different amino acid profile to other specially designed preterm formulas and to breast milk, which is likely not as beneficial. Studies have shown that preterm infants who are placed on soy formula have poor weight gain and growth when they are on soy compared to a specialized preterm formula. So overall, not recommended. Another common question is, well, what about solids? Because this baby is preterm. In-term infants, the AAP recommends that at four to six months of age, more like six months of age now, um, solids can be introduced. And the same is true for preterm infants. When they are corrected to four to six months of age, based on their oral motor readiness, that's when solids can be introduced. However, another consideration is that they need to be able to support their trunk and their head um, as part of that oral motor readiness, as they can have other comorbidities and developmental delays that can affect that readiness. Even at the time of introduction of solids, the majority of nutritional value will still come from either the breast milk or the formula that they are receiving. We know that premature infants have a lot of growing up to do. That term, catch-up growth, is used for describing both growth and development in premature infants. The definition of catch up growth varies greatly in the literature, but it's generally considered to be achieved when the infant reaches between the fifth and the tenth percentile on the growth curve for their corrected age. This is a study that looked at babies who were fed preterm formula with the black dots compared to term formula with the white dots. This y axis represents the Z score, sorry, the Z score. (laughs) with scores below zero representing degree of malnutrition, and scores above zero representing sufficient nutrition. On the x-axis here, you have discharge to six months after discharge. Uh, It's really their corrected age. If you look at both boys and girls here, you can see that the infants who were fed with a preterm formula had better Z-scores, indicating better nutritional status compared to those who were fed with a term formula. Growth velocity is also something that we talk about a whole lot in the NICU and even after discharge. And we know that um, this study assessed growth benefits of fortification during the hospital stay. So infants with the darker gray had fortified human milk and those with the lighter gray had unfortified human milk. And those who received fortified milk had greater weightly increases in terms of grams per week and also increased daily growth velocity, which we do calculate and follow in the NICU. It's been a while since we checked on baby A and baby B. This is baby A's WHO growth curve, because she was now sent home from the NICU. I'll show you her growth curve corrected for her gestational age, so it gets a little messier. That red arrow indicates the time of discharge. And as you can see here, even prior to discharge, she was essentially caught up. She was on that 50th percentile line for her corrected age, and she continued to stay there. She received... um, supplementation with Neosure 24-calorie formula after going home in addition to breast milk feedings, and was closely followed in our clinic here. This is baby B's growth curve, um, which does not look as impressive, and even if I correct for his gestational age, you can see he had started to catch up in terms of his growth, but after discharge, he fell further off the curve. This baby stopped receiving fortification after he went home and was no longer receiving increased calories or other nutrients. When we think about growth restriction, there's two types to think about. Babies can have intrauterine growth restriction and be born small for gestational age. So that's if they have a weight under the 10th percentile for the gestational age. But they can also have extrauterine growth restriction. And that's a weight under the 10th percentile at term or at the time of discharge, depending where you're looking in the literature. Extrauterine growth restriction is associated with um, other comorbidities. We know that the associated caloric, caloric and protein deficits associated with babies who have extrauterine growth restriction not only results in slower growth velocity, but is also associated with increased risks of other major neonatal morbidities, such as increased rates of bronchopulmonary dysplasia, increased rates of retinopathy of prematurity, and increased rates of impaired neurodevelopment. Along the same line, epidemiologic studies have described additional long-term health consequences of growth restriction and low birth weight, such as an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, including hypertension and coronary artery disease, as well as increased risk of metabolic disease, such as fatty liver and insulin resistance. That can persist into adult life. With babies being born with growth restriction or up to a third being discharged from the NICU with growth restriction, When is the best time for them to obtain this catch-up growth that we talk about all the time? (laughs) Literature suggests that early catch-up growth occurring in the first two years of life is beneficial with regard to general health and cardiovascular and metabolic health, whereas delayed catch-up growth occurring after the first two years of life is likely harmful um, with increased risks of obesity, cardiovascular disease, and metabolic disease. It was previously thought that being born premature alone increased your risk of all these other comorbidities into adulthood. However, the literature is suggesting now that it's this delayed catch-up growth, which plays a large part in impacting those long-term effects. It's not just weight that we think about when we talk about catch-up growth, we think about head circumference and length as well. This is baby A's WHO curve for her head circumference. And even without correcting for her gestational age, you can see here that she had great catch-up growth with her head circumference that kind of tracked along the same lines as her weight did. And as a reminder, this was the baby who received supplementation after being discharged home from the NICU. Baby B, on the other hand, who did no longer receive fortification after going home, correcting for gestational age, you can see right up to discharge, he was having catch-up growth for his head circumference. And then when he went home and was no longer receiving fortification, his head circumference fell off the growth curve again. And to here, i just like to highlight that. It's not just weight that we need to think about in terms of timing of fortification and when babies no longer need those extra calories. It's their head circumference as well. That's where the brain grows. I'd like to kind of switch gears and talk about iron deficiency. small text, but um, iron is my favorite element. (laughs) All right, so we know that iron is closely linked to brain development, and iron deficiency is closely linked to impaired neurodevelopment. One of the first studies that looked at the effect of iron deficiency on cognition appropriately used the Bailey Scales of Infant Development, which we still use. Those assess motor, language, and cognitive development in, in infants and toddlers, and this study gave one group of infants iron supplementation and one group of infants placebo, the infants who got iron supplementation had improved neurodevelopmental outcomes. There were issues with the methodology of that study, but many other studies along the lines, including recent studies, um, have showed a correlation between iron deficiency and poor neurodevelopmental consequences in newborns that last beyond the time period of their iron deficiency. And this can affect motor development, memory, social-emotional behavior, and just overall maturation of the brain. There are many different studies that have looked at iron deficiency at various time points in development. However, we know that the most sensitive time period is the neonatal period, which can result in irreversible consequences. And although studies have shown that supplementation can help to improve outcomes, um, there are studies that have shown that even despite supplementation, some of these long-term effects can persist. This chart demonstrates key timing of certain aspects of brain development, including vision and hearing in red, language in green, and higher cognitive function in blue. And that's something that's harder to test for, but um, includes executive function. This time period coincides with adaptive changes and synaptic pruning that are necessary for cognitive function and expressive and receptive language development. while. Well, all of a child's development is important. The first six months when these areas are at high likelihood of being affected coincides with a critical time period to try to avoid iron deficiency because of the role it plays in development. These are silver stained neurons showing synaptic density in the first two years of life. So on the left you have a newborn and on the right you have a two year old. During the first two years of life the brain experiences a huge transformation from a relatively simple to a very complex organ, and iron plays a key role that is well established in synaptogenesis, the organization of neurotransmitter systems, and the onset of myelination, especially within the hippocampus visual system and the auditory system. There are no studies that really look at this in that detail in humans. However, there are animal models um, that have done studies on iron-sufficient and iron-deficient neuron development. This was a rat-pup study Done in 2019 that showed reduced dendritic density in the hippocampus of iron deficient rats. So these top two images, A and C, show the neuronal density in the hippocampus hippocampus of iron sufficient rats, and images B and D demonstrate the hippocampal neuronal density in iron deficient rats. And they use visually, I think this is remarkable to see, but they did use a student's t-test to compare this density after counting multiple cultures for number of neuronal nuclei, and this was statistically significant. So those are plenty of animal studies. However, um, why are preterm infants at such high risk of iron deficiency? There's a couple of reasons. They have reduced stores at birth, secondary to reduced placental transfusion, secondary to being born early. They also have frequent lab draws in the NICU, so we do have some level of iatrogenic blood loss. Iron deficiency poses a risk of impaired neurodevelopment even prior to the onset of anemia. So just iron deficiency alone can cause this risk. Ferritin is a previously accepted standard for diagnosis of iron deficiency. Notably, there is no gold standard in these infants. However, there's no real agreed-upon consensus for indicators of iron status and prematurity, and research is still ongoing. Which brings me to my small project. Uh, Tyler Hartman and I a retrospective study that had the aim to compare ferritin and reticulated hemoglobin as markers of iron deficiency. And we did this in former NICU patients who were presenting to TLC clinic who were born under 32 weeks of age or who were born very low birth weight. And we compared previously drawn routinely indicated screening labs in order to compare these two indicators. We know that reticulocyte hemoglobin is an established marker of iron deficiency in both the pediatric and the adult populations. It's conveniently measured in the same sample as a complete blood count, so could, in theory, just be an add-on lab. And it conveniently also reflects current iron iron stores because reticulocytes have a half-life of about 48 hours, so it gives you a live snapshot of the current iron status. And reticulocytes are essentially immature red blood cells. Ferritin, on the other hand, is a known marker of low iron stores. Previous studies have shown it's not as good of a pre-anemia iron deficiency biomarker as reticulocyte hemoglobin in both pediatrics and adult populations. And because it's an acute phase reactant, sometimes it only provides limited information. If there is stress or any inflammation at all, ferritin can be elevated, so you could have a false elevation that causes you to miss iron deficiency being present. In our study, we had a sample size of 127 infants, and we used a logistic regression to test association of iron deficiency as marked by reticulated hemoglobin with demographic factors. And we did find an increased odds of being iron deficient with being male or being heavier, which was interesting. However, none of these were statistically significant. Um, We thought that maybe the heavier babies were less likely to be transfused when they were in the NICU as one possible explanation for that. And then we used a kappa coefficient to compare the agreement of reticulated hemoglobin and ferritin with iron deficiency, and the bottom line is that they did not agree as markers. Um, With that, Do we really need to measure iron status? The last 50 years have shown the same recommendations despite many studies. The recommendation is to supplement all preterm infants starting at about 30 days of life with one to three milligrams per kilogram per day of iron. The same recommendation is true today. So do we really need to measure it if we know they're all iron deficient and they're all going to get supplemented? Um, I would argue that yes, we do because infants who are refractory to iron supplementation need increased rates of iron supplementation as high as 4 to 6 milligrams per kilogram per day. We do know that reticulated hemoglobin is a potential marker of pre-anemic iron deficiency, but its relationship to the onset of brain iron deficiency is unknown and not really possible to assess in clinical studies. And what we do know is that In terms of where iron is stored in the body, your brain, your liver, your bone marrow, your heart, and your spleen, the brain is the first to become iron deficient of those organs. It's also the organ that arguably needs it the most. So how do we find iron deficiency in time? This was a fascinating study also done in rat pups. And it evaluated hemoglobin, reticulated hemoglobin as a biomarker of brain pre-anemia iron deficiency. And overall, it showed that reticulated hemoglobin identifies those at risk for brain iron deficiency in the pre-anemic stage as soon as that deficiency is present and even before onset of that deficiency. And when looking at that in comparison to hemoglobin, hemoglobin did not identify iron deficiency in the brain even at its onset. So if that similar relationship exists between rat pups and children, Um, In terms of the physiology, the current recommendations of using hemoglobin as a marker at 6 to 12 months corrected age in terms of diagnosis and treatment of iron deficiency is just too late because we've missed that critical time window. An important value of a biomarker resides in its ability to predict the risk of a disease prior to disease onset. And reticulated hemoglobin was the only marker in this study that changed prior to the onset of brain deficiency. What we do in the TLC clinic here is monitor for iron status, ideally about one month after discharge, and sometimes that's delayed with patients not being able to come in until two, four, or even six months of age. But we do do it earlier than the recommendation of six to 12 months. Where is iron status and iron deficiency going? I think one of the main points is that we need to prevent iron deficiency. Ideally prevent preterm births, but... Those are just increasing, Um, and that involves adequate prenatal care and making sure that mothers are not iron deficient to begin with. There's still a lot of work being done on what the ideal marker of iron deficiency is, and studies are coming out every month that are looking at different markers and what cutoffs are best to use, but this is still ongoing. And I think an important question to ask when we think about iron status is Our caregivers really giving the iron supplementation to their babies? It's really challenging to have a newborn at home, especially a preterm newborn, and it could be easily forgotten um, or just not given at all because there are misconceptions about iron deficient, iron supplementation causing constipation or upset stomach. And so this is a point um, that could be an opportunity for education and further research. I haven't forgotten about baby A and baby B. Um, Let's just check in on their neurodevelopment. Baby A did come for her Bailey screener at one year corrected age, and in all domains, her development was completely on track, which was great to see. She's pretty happy about it. Um, Baby B, unfortunately, did not come to his one year corrected age Bailey screener, but there was documentation in his chart from another physician who saw him and wrote that he was babbling and sitting at about 13 or 14 months corrected, which um, is not a formal development screener, but suggests that he was globally delayed, unfortunately. And I specifically have not alluded to the fact that other comorbidities that these babies may have and socioeconomic factors play a huge role in growth and a huge role in neurodevelopment. But I hope that these baby stories have been illustrative of how critical nutritional status is and how close we, we need to follow it. I knew very early on that the NICU was where my career was taking me. I love the physiology, I love the patients, the acuity and the continuity with the babies and their families. And what I really did not love initially was the maze of fluids, electrolytes, counting calories, calculating growth velocity, and the feeding adjustments that occur so frequently. But what changed for me was reframing nutrition not just as simply feeding the baby, but as a treatment for their growth failure, a treatment for their malnutrition, and as something that improves outcomes across all their body systems. So I hope you've either learned or at least refreshed what you already knew about neonatal nutrition, in particular in relation to its effects on other organ systems, the importance of catch-up growth and fortification to provide those extra calories, protein, and other nutrients. And I hope you remain as curious as I do about the best way to monitor iron status. Um, The key message I hope to send you home with is that early nutrition has a huge impact on both short-term and long-term health of these preterm infants. Thank you so much for your attention. Great question. So I did actually go back in his chart and look, and it turned out that um, when this baby was coming to clinic, both with his PCP and with the TLC clinic, um, they were the caregivers were adamant that they were providing the increased calories, the supplementation, um, and a few months later when his growth still had plateaued, um, There was a very long visit with the PCP, and they admitted that they were not doing the supplementation, that they were letting him sleep through the night and not providing it, and that they were afraid to tell the providers that, because they were convinced that he was having increased spit ups um, and increased vomiting with the feeds. Um, But they did not actually disclose that to their care team as one of the reasons (laughs) that he didn't have the best growth. are interested in osteopenia for um, And I wondered if you might touch on some of
2: the factors that um, cause symptomatic osteopenia. You talked about the, the decrease in frequency of um, But you can you tell us some of the things that make that more likely? And uh, at what age, if ever, does that work? how do they get
3: to catch Great question. So there's a couple of factors that increase the risk of osteopenia. So if they're born earlier, um, that is one of the main things. Um, Other factors, like if they're given steroids, can affect their rates of osteopenia. And just overall critical illness can affect their increased rates. Um, Supplementation is one of the main things that has improved their rates, so increased calories, but increased minerals as well. Um, I'm actually not quite sure at what age we are reassured about that risk.
0: <laughs> so to, my, to my reading of literature, I don't think there have been broad enough studies to answer that question. I think it's just to follow other practices that catch up for it. But there have been some small studies using DEXA scans in, in newborns, but not large populations. The normative benefits for them when they were four or five. So, it's not the, the unknown the this the unknown. The I uh, standard deviations matter are quite wide in that setting, which means that there's a lot of variability. and That's just indicative of like the variability of the core feeding throughout this kid. So, uh, I think that they probably, the standard deviation early on is
2: probably much smaller than it you is. Know.
0: You're not about bone density or okay. bone the, 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 the wide standard deviations also reflects the small n. Yeah. Okay. so that that's.
2: To push uh, Beautiful um, presentation here. Thank you so much. I wondered if you wanted to comment about delayed court planning you and your favorite outreach <laughs> and whether we have seen the shift in media <coughs> maturity with the new transfusions. Any of
3: A study actually just came out a few months ago that showed, um, well, evaluated delayed cord clamping and the effect on ferritin status at four months corrected age, um, and it was improved. Um, However, there's there's not a lot of studies that look at long-term effects of that. So I think, in theory, we expect that delayed cord clamping with a little bit of increased transfusion would decrease the need for transfusions, but I'm not totally up to date on the literature for how many transfusions babies get. That's a great question.
2: What do you mean by delayed cord
3: clamping? That is also a great question. Okay. <laughs> uh, so delayed cord clamping, um, depending where you look, can be over 30 seconds, over 45 seconds, or at least 60 seconds of when the baby is born and how long it takes, um, takes us to clamp the cord, and that's kind of variable in the literature. But I think generally, and someone correct me if I'm wrong, if it's 60 seconds is the more accepted time period deliberate, it's not. Right. Right. And reasons that babies would not get delayed cord clamping is if they look too unwell and they are just rushed to the resuscitator. Dr.
0: Marlene, Dorothy.
2: You not teach Tyler what the TLC stands
3: for? <laughs> <laughs>
0: say three bottles of or twenty-seven. cal, you're getting 1.1 grams of protein per kilo per day versus sure formula, you're getting 2.2, 2.3, it's just 2.4 cal. The goal is three, it's really tough to get there without using.
2: To do it quickly, but that's
3: the it? I, I think there's a lot of factors, and a lot of it is they, they want to get back to, to just exclusive breast milk is one of the things, but um, convenience of giving a normal fortification, a normal formula, um, and people will look at like a weight curve and see that a baby has caught up to a certain level and stop the fortification, but it's not just the weight that we need to look at, it's other markers of nutritional status and their head circumference as well. It is more of a case-by-case. So babies who are discharged on, like, Neosure 24, um, whether that's in supplementation or exclusively, with their their weight and other markers will be followed, and then they'll usually go from 24 to 22 calorie, and then from 22 will go down to regular standard strength, which is 19 or 20. Um, And so that it, it does vary, and it's kind of based on an individual baby's status and growth.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I, I appreciate the, how difficult nutrition is when the ICN. I've always said nutrition is the most difficult thing to people do. But now it's your turn to give me some information. Okay. is um, <laughs> so there it, something that you can think of that we should do proactively in the ICN talking to parents about how important it is to continue the nutrition? Because I think we get really focused on trying to normalize for home as much as possible. But in that, are we inadvertently hurting ourselves and the babies by saying, oh, you know, breastfeeding, da-da-da. Which we want them to do, but sort of almost saying, once your baby goes home, they're going to be going home, they're going to eat like a regular baby. And a premature baby is not going to eat and grow like a regular baby. So what should we be
3: doing? proactively to help you with the follow-up for the NICU. That's a great question, too. I think one of the most helpful things that I've seen Stephanie do with families in the NICU is show them the growth chart. Um, and I think, actually, we did have a baby who was having poor growth, and the family did not want to supplement going home. And I was asking Stephanie if we have an example of a baby with poor growth to show them kind of what can happen when fortification stops. And I think maybe having some visuals or even handouts might be helpful. But you're completely right. We try to normalize it. And it, it's not totally normal. It's normal for a preterm infant, but they're, they're not just like their term counterparts. I think we could do a better job. <laughs>
2: I think taking some of the information you have in your presentation actually on both the development and developmental outcomes would be key. I think also that I'm hearing more and more um, parents are reading on print on ingredients, that so there's a lot in the media, right or wrong.
3: Yeah, and I definitely know that those are frequent questions asked in the TLC clinic, too, is about specific ingredients.
2: Yeah. I'd just like to mention um, that part of the reason I think parents are reluctant to continue um, the, you know, the higher calorie <laughs> formula is simply availability. I mean, you can go to anywhere, you can go to the stop and go, you can go anywhere and get regular formula, but it does take a concentrated effort to get high-calorie formula in your home, and WIC does provide a certain amount, but at some point, you know, they say, you know, this is meant to help you. This isn't meant to cover the whole cost of what it takes to feed a baby, um, and in rural world- we would, <laughs> we would. Um, That becomes a big factor, um, you know, and particularly for, for low-income families, it becomes yet another hassle they have to deal with. Um, and sometimes they just, well, it looks normal now, you know, will will convert over to something more convenient.
3: That's a great point. Thank you. It sure is available in your supermarkets and Walmart. And if you live in Hampshire, you can actually get it through
2: a home delivery program if you qualify for WIC and Medicaid. So that's something you can work on and get a family with the prescription of and get that home delivery company. It's a house. little bit more challenging in Vermont. In Vermont, they'll actually put it on your WIC card. Right. If you qualify so, so for Vermont WIC, they will put it right on your WIC card, so it's easier. And and our um, actually our WIC uh,
0: on that you note, know, one thing that we see a lot of parents when they get down to like our very last hand. they call us on like Friday at like four o'clock <laughs> like, on our last We do have some in, uh, in the TLC clinic, so we sometimes, uh, and that is great. Actually. Uh, she actually literally FedExes. Parents with a delivery that Stephanie mentioned can't get in time, and that was a fairly recent switch over the last couple of years. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thank you.